0: Hey guys. Welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is
1: Creags Over, over coffee. coffee.
0: Today is not necessarily a learning episode, though I'm sure, you know, when I was writing the script for this episode, you all may learn something. But on today's episode, we wanted to talk about abortion care in the United States. And so Nick, what are our learning objectives for today?
1: Yeah, so um, certainly in the light of the news from this past weekend, um, that's part of what we want to discuss today. And we have a prior episode about the state of abortion care in the United States, but we're going to start off discussing the current state of abortion care in the US and comparing it to other developed countries. We're going to spend more time today reviewing the history of abortion care in the United States, particularly in the latter half of the 20th century we are going to share with you um, as a learning objective to understand briefly why abortion is healthcare. We'll finish today ultimately with a call to action um, about what Faye and I think, um, which is something we don't typically share on the podcast. We try to be Mm -hmm. objective, but um, today we're going to tell you what we think, what we think you can do to make sure um, rights and our patients' rights aren't taken away. And yeah, this is going to be about a revolution, tearing down systems that don't prioritize care for birthing people. This is a really, really important moment, and so think this is why we wanted to make this podcast and I gotta just say from the outset like kudos to Faye for putting this script and this research together literally in, in a matter of days
0: um, so bravo Faye well thank you Nick but the big thing that I wanted to come out and say about why you know we're making this podcast is I think prior to this year as trainees and doctors like I think you and I have really tried to like keep our heads down and not be like too radical and not really put our own opinions onto this podcast mm-hmm. and very much been in line with what ACOG and all the other societies have to say. And, you know, we sometimes make our preferences known based off of our training, but certainly nothing political. Because I think, and maybe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong if this was not how you thought, Nick, but I always thought, you know, who are we as a podcast, as OBGYNs, as trainees to be able to make a difference? And who really cares about our opinions anyway? Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. But I think, you know, as we've gained more of a following and listeners, and we're actually rounding out about 2.2 million downloads this month. I I think. You know, to continue to do this would really be a disservice to ourselves, to our patients, and to you, our listeners. And so this podcast is a way for us to let you know where we stand on the current state of abortion care in the U.S. and let you know what you can do to preserve our rights and our patients' rights that are slowly being stripped away by the current governmental bodies of the different states and the Supreme Court. For fear of sounding too long-winded, Nick, let's get started. So what are the current state of things in the U.S.?
1: I'm sure at this point you have read about the leaked Supreme Court document that we alluded to at the beginning that's essentially a majority opinion that will likely overturn Roe versus Wade. And if you haven't read it, we will link to the Politico story um, along with the leaked opinion on our website. Um, and again, I just I say that deliberately. This does not mean at this point that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, um, but per Politico, deliberations on controversial cases in the past have been very fluid. Justices can and sometimes do change their votes as draft opinion circulates. Major decisions can be subject to drafts, vote trading. Um, and this can go even until days before a decision's unveiled. We'll likely have a final decision within the next two months that will be published by the court, um, but this won't be final until then. So in the United States at this point, abortion is still legal. But let's talk a bit more about the history of abortion laws, Fay, um, particularly with respect to what restrictions exist.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, we say, yes, abortion is legal. But the true state of things is that there are multiple states that have restrictions in somewhere or other. So, for example, only six states have no restrictions on abortions. And these states, and I will state them just so that we all know them, are Oregon, Colorado, New Mexico, New Jersey, Vermont, and New Hampshire. Most states um, have limitations of some kind, usually at viability, and certain states have limitations of somewhere between 24 to 25 weeks, and I won't list all of them. But still other states have what they call a limit of viability, but individual institutions in that state will limit gestational ages, effectively making that limitation less than viability because of the opportunity for patients to be able to get abortions in that states. Some other states will have 22-week limits, Others have limitations at 15 or 20 weeks. And as of course, as we may all know, Texas is the most restrictive at six weeks. However, there are restrictions that exist beyond gestational age. So, for example, in the setting of minors, there is sometimes parental consent or informed laws that exist for all but seven states. There's also a mandatory waiting period for 24 hours or more in 24 states. And state constitutional protection of abortion exists really only in 14 states. And as we know, there's no government funding for abortion, meaning that insurance from the government does not have to fund abortion. And so knowing that, if the state does not actually fund abortion, then first trimester abortions can cost anywhere between $500 to $1,000 out of pocket, which is prohibitively high for many of our patients. And so currently, should Roe v. Wade get overturned, there are legislatures in 22 states already that say that they would move to ban or further restrict abortion laws. And so it's very important, I think, to know exactly what the state of our nation is at time and what Roe v. Wade protects. I mean, we are referring to Roe v. Wade a lot already, Nick, but I think it's also important to take that step back and talk a little bit about some of those landmark court cases and exactly what they mean and exactly what they protect.
1: Yeah, let's start with Roe v. Wade. So many folks may not know, uh, but this is a court case that involved someone named Norma McCorvey. Um, during this trial, her identity was protected under the pseudonym Jane Roe, and in 1969, she became pregnant with her third child. She could not have an abortion as she had desired because in Texas at that time, it was fully illegal. Um, and her attorneys filed a lawsuit on her behalf in U.S. federal court alleging that Texas abortion laws were unconstitutional. A federal district court ruled in her favor and the state ultimately appealed to the Supreme Court. And in 1973, the Supreme Court ruled in a seven to two decision that per the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, there was a right to privacy that protects a woman's right to choose an abortion. But the Supreme Court did qualify this to some degree by saying that the right was not absolute and needed to be balanced against the government's interest in protecting a woman's life um, as well as a prenatal life. And so, ultimately, they decided to tie state regulation to the three trimesters of pregnancy, saying that during the first trimester, the government could not prohibit abortion at all. In the second trimester, the government could require reasonable health regulations, and that during the third trimester, abortion could be prohibited entirely so long as laws contained exceptions for cases where they were necessary to save the life or the health of the mother. Um, so ultimately, this meant that abortion was legal after Roe v. Wade, but still left a decent amount up for interpretation. States could basically enact provisions that could make it difficult to get an abortion. Um, and some of these things that we saw throughout history could include things like waiting periods, informed consent laws, or a requirement for spousal or parental consents. Another one of the landmark cases, Fay, was Planned Parenthood versus Casey.
0: Yeah, so this was a trial where the court upheld the right to have an abortion that was established in Roe v. Wade. And so this case, as a background, arose from a challenge to five provisions of the Pennsylvania Abortion Control Act or, or the PACA law of 1982. And the provisions included uh, certain things like requirements for a waiting period unless there was a medical emergency, spousal notice, and parental consent for minors. Um, the other two are specific um, informed consent that the provider had to. Read to the uh, patient, and then also some reporting requirements and record keeping requirements for abortion service facilities. Um, the court ultimately upheld Bro and also overturned the original trimester framework in favor of a viability analysis. And so while this is typically seen at 24 weeks per the precedent set by Casey, states have enacted laws since then to restrict abortion, including abortions earlier than the general standard of 24 weeks. Um, and also, this case replaced that scrutiny standard of review required by Roe with the undue burden standard, under which abortion restrictions would be unconstitutional when they were enacted for the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking an abortion of a non-viable fetus. The court ultimately did uphold four of those provisions of the Pennsylvania law, but it did invalidate the requirement for spousal notification. So this, I think, brings us to the present day almost, Nick, which is this trial of Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Organization.
1: Yeah, and this is the pending trial that the opinion was leaked about. And so this is the, the present case that we really are focused on. Again, it's a pending U.S. Supreme Court case that's dealing with the constitutionality of a 2018 Mississippi state law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. In March of 2018, Mississippi passed something called the Gestational Age Act. And within a day, the remaining abortion clinic in Mississippi, known as Jackson's Women's Health Organization, sued the state, challenging the constitutionality of that bill, and in a district court of Southern Mississippi, the judge ruled in the clinic's favor and placed an injunction on the state enjoining them from enforcing that gestational age act. The state appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which upheld that original ruling, and then the state petitions their act to the Supreme Court in June of 2020, with the case arguments heard in December of 2021 ultimately, it seems from this Politico draft that not only would the district court and appeals court decisions be overturned for this specific case, but that this goes back to overturn all of the precedent leading up to that, including Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Mm -hmm. So a really, you know, a a remarkable and astounding amount of change on the basis of this court decision that we're anticipating. Um, And so Faye, I think at this point, now that we've thought about the U.S. and sort of this relatively recent history, we should probably compare ourselves to other places that do abortion, particularly developed nations.
0: And I think before we even get into that, Nick, I kind of want to bring up the WHO, the World Health Organization guidelines that were recently updated in March of 2022 about abortion care. Because I do feel that the WHO provides a very good guideline about what is to be expected from abortion care, um, not just in the United States, but in the entire world and what we should uphold as health care. And we'll put a link to it. It's very long. I I understand if you don't want to read all of it. But some of the important points come from it are that... The WHO recommends against mandatory waiting periods. They recommend that abortions be available on request of the woman or pregnant person without authorization of any other individual, body, or institution. They recommend against laws and other regulations that prohibit abortion based on gestational age limits. Um, They recommend the full decriminalization of abortion, and they recommend against the use of ultrasound scanning as a prerequisite for providing abortion services. So this is certainly very different from what we have in the United States. States. And looking at some other countries, especially developed nations, you know, looking at our northern neighbor, Canada, Canada has no laws or restrictions regulating abortion. And I think to have something like that really is um, in compliance with the WHO guidelines. In most countries, other than the United States and Australia, the right to abortion also has been legalized by respective parliaments and governments instead of by state. So certainly the United States and Australia are very different in that perspective if we were to turn that decision over to just individual states. And finally, abortion is legal in all European nations, though some gestational age limits do apply. So I I think now that we've talked a little bit about history, we might go back to a little bit more history because I do want to talk about, Nick, you know, why we feel that abortion is healthcare.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, as you mentioned, Faye, to sort of contextualize this with history a little bit, again, in 1973, Roe v. Wade established abortion as a right, um, or access to abortion as a right. And, you know, we saw in the immediate aftermath of this a challenge in something known as the Hyde Amendment. This was passed three years after the Roe v. Wade decision, and is responsible for the blockage of federal funds from being used to pay for abortion outside the very narrow scope of cases of rape, incest, or life endangerment. But prior to this, until about the early 1800s, abortion was considered legal until the point of quickening, or the perception of fetal movement. And a shift towards banning abortion at this point in history was really born out of racism, misogyny, and a desire to control pregnant folks' bodies, frankly. We saw this shift kind of begin in the mid-1800s, where black midwives and healers, frankly, were condemned for performing abortions. And and condemned for participating in the care of pregnant people. This probably was motivated overall by declining birth rates of white Protestant American women in the 1800s and increased migration, again, fear of otherness. So sort of that I think contextualizes just the the backlash against abortion and sort of again the relative newness of of this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about sort of why safe abortion care is needed, Faye.
0: Yeah. So I, I think the very first thing that I say to why safe abortion care is needed is that abortion is going to happen regardless of whether or not it's prohibited. The Guttmacher Institute reports that in 2017, the abortion rate in countries that prohibit or limit abortion in some way was 37 out of 1,000 people. And the abortion rate um, in countries that broadly allow for abortion was 34 out of 1,000 people. So really not at all different. However, unsafe abortions do lead to 4.7 to 13.2%, depending on what studies you look at, of maternal deaths. And so we know that by banning abortion, we are not necessarily getting rid of abortion. We also know that most abortions occur early on, and it's safe when there is good health care. So according to the CDC in 2016, more than almost two-thirds of abortions occurred at eight weeks or less, and 91%, or the large majority, occurred before 13 weeks or in that first trimester. And only 1.2% of abortions are performed at 21 weeks or later. The ways of abortions that are done certainly look at our previous episodes. We have some on medication abortions as well as second trimester abortions. But most of all, we know that abortions are actually safer than pregnancy. The risk of death from an abortion is less than 1 in 100,000, and the risk of dying in childbirth is actually 15 times higher than the risk of dying from an early abortion. The complications for medical abortion is very low, less than 1% of patients, and even the rate of complication in surgical abortion is overall very low, quoted at 0.5 to 4%. Also we know that having an abortion does not increase your future risk of cancer and does not decrease your fertility in the future. Nick, I think it's important now to talk about, you know, who gets abortions.
1: Yeah, so the Guttmacher Institute again has characterized very openly the state of abortion in the United States and in 2014 actually gave us a good demographic look. They broke it down by multiple ways, so for race and ethnicity, Again, the breakdown was thirty nine percent white, twenty eight percent black, twenty five percent Latinx, six percent Asian or Pacific Islander, three percent other. Um, so essentially, that demographic is everyone. Yeah. The. Sort of other surprising, or maybe not so surprising, findings about who gets abortions were that 62% of patients were identified as being religiously affiliated, 59% of folks who had abortions already had children, and 60% of those seeking abortion were people in their 20s. There are a variety of reasons for abortion, though 74% of the time they found that having a child would interfere with some other opportunity, such as their ability to get educated, to work, or have an ability to care for their other dependents. You know, 73%, frankly, said that they could not afford a baby. And so, you know, again, I think a lot of that really has to do with economic inequality that is a whole other episode beyond the scope of this podcast, Yeah. Um. but I'm sure is covered by other wonderful podcasts out there. Yes. Um, Um, Another thing that's important to know is that it's already hard to get access to abortion care, even in what we'd consider the most liberal or open states for that. In California, 12% of women travel 50 miles or more to seek abortion care. Um, Especially impacted are those who are seeking second trimester abortions or who live in rural areas. And a study of over 6,000 telemed abortion requests um, demonstrated that 76% of requests to this particular service were from states with hostile restrictions, emphasizing the importance of trying to access this care and the challenges of accessing this care. 60% reported a combination of barriers to clinic access and a preference for self-management with respect to privacy and convenience. So again, even medication abortion, the the simpler, if you will, form is still very challenging to to access. I, you know, we've gone through this now about like why safe abortion care is needed, why it's important to know. I mean, you know, inevitably there are folks that are not going to be able to travel more than 50 miles, and that's California, too. A well-off relatively rich state but there are lots of folks again who can't travel that far who don't have five hundred a thousand dollars laying around in cash to to pay for abortion services Mm -hmm. um and so with the state of things as they are right now, safe legal abortion is unattainable for folks who are poor or don't have resources. And what we do by further restricting abortion laws, we're making things worse for people who don't have those resources. And people who have money and have resources are always going to be able to get abortion. So again, we're just dichotomizing this country further and causing further issues with inequality um, and now this takes on the form of abortion. Hopefully at this point we've provided a good overview of the current state of abortion care in the United States and how we've gotten here um, and we try to show you why we feel like abortion is health care, why we feel it's imperative to maintain abortion access and keep it legal. So Faye, talk with us kind of about where we go from here in our call to action.
0: Yeah, so these are our desires for abortion law in the United States, and a lot of this is based off of the ACOG Committee Opinion 815, which I think is really great. It's called Increasing Access to Abortion, and we'll post that link in our website as well, and I encourage everyone to go look at it. The first is that the Hyde Amendment and any law that restrict public or private insurance coverage of abortion should be eliminated. So we do not want there to be any restriction for financial uh, reasons for abortion. There also should not be undue barriers that restrict access to abortion, including but not limited to things like bans by gestational age, requirements that only a physician or an OBGYN give abortion care, telemedicine bans, restrictions on medication abortions, including mailing medicine through the USPS, um, requirement for mandatory counseling, waiting periods before abortion, ultrasound requirements, mandatory parental consent or informing, mandatory spousal consent or informing, um, as well as facility and staffing requirements as outlined in the targeted regulations of abortion providers or TRAP laws. We also call for OBGYN and family medicine practices to have opt-out abortion training for medical student, resident, and advanced practice clinicians, and government funding to be insured for these programs. We also call that obtaining an abortion or aiding another to obtain an abortion or providing an abortion should not be considered criminal activities. Institutions should see abortion as healthcare and support it as such. And finally, any decision for abortion and method of abortion should be between the patient and their healthcare provider and not be dictated by the government, healthcare facility, or ability to pay for abortion. So those are a lot of things, Nick, and I know that some of those things may be aspirational from where we sit, but I also wanted to make sure that you as our listeners feel empowered to do something. So what can they do, Nick, um, to try and help us forward with this cause?
1: Yeah, so let's start with just kind of some political things and things that you hear, but it's the time of year as well where folks are moving around, right? Like you're graduating med school, you're maybe finishing your residency and starting a job somewhere else. You may just be moving to move around your your city or wherever you're located. So it's time to register to vote and make sure your voter registration is updated. Uh, We'll post a link on our website of how to register to vote to try and make it as simple as possible. You should talk with your institutions try and see if they'll make a commitment to keeping abortion care as part of their practice and then finally from a political perspective talk with your representatives again we're all from different places but we're so we're especially talking to folks here in the united states but we'll post links on our website to find your senators find your representatives let them know that you're a constituent and then we'll also provide a brief script from the American Civil Liberties Union that you can use. So that way you can talk with your senator or representative directly um, about how you urge protection of abortion rights into law. What about other organizations or other things folks can do, Faye?
0: Yeah. So certainly, you know, I think donating or volunteering for your local Planned Parenthood is always great. And we'll post that link onto our website and also donating to the ACLU. The nice thing is that if you join their mailing list, they will also keep you up to date on federal legislation as well through either text or email. The other thing that I think we can do as OBGYN providers specifically is to familiarize ourselves further about our state and neighboring states laws and regulations for abortion via the Guttmacher Institute. And we'll post links for that as well. So it's really important for you to be able to tell your patients if they need to have an abortion, if they can't have it at your in your state for whatever reason, where they could possibly go to do that. Other things that you can think about are things like organizing or go lobbying um, at your place of government. Um, if you don't know how there's actually classes online that you can take and we'll actually post one um, that you can go on to for pro-choice america um, they will actually teach you how to mobilize and run a meeting um, about teaching people about being pro-choice certainly you know you can do things like become part of a pro-choice organization in your community or encourage people to register and vote what else can people do as a provider nick
1: Yeah. So with this weekend upcoming too, um, we're anticipating that folks will be looking to go out and organize and march. So be sure kind of, we want folks to be out there marching, organizing, but be sure that you're protecting yourself and following some basic guidance to again protect yourself and to march successfully so research what others are saying about the rally or event is it safe are there going to be counter protesters is there a risk for violence try not to go alone um, it's safer to go in a group and I say this again at the kindest of hearts especially if you're someone who identifies as female identifies as trans identifies as a black or indigenous person of color um, it's safer to go in a Wear a mask, COVID-19 is still real. Bring a pack, have things with you to take care of yourselves and potentially take care of others. So snacks, your phone and phone charger, other essentials like pads or tampons, band-aids, etc. Um, make sure that your phone is only unlockable by password protection. Police cannot force you to unlock your phone, but they can unlock it with your face or fingerprint against your will. So consider turning your phone onto airplane mode while protesting and again, make your phone only unlockable by password. Wear comfortable closed-toed shoes, write emergency comments contact information or emergency legal counsel information on your arm and permanent marker and stay vigilant if you are arrested demand legal representation before speaking to the police if you want to be seen in your white coats that's okay but make sure again that you're safe and you're going to group and if you don't want to be recognized make sure that you're wearing mask or goggles and cover tattoos that are recognizable again we're not trying to encourage people to do illegal things and i'll make hundred percent clear but yeah. <laughs> we do recognize that this is a heated topic and the, again if you encounter folks who are counter protesting or intending to use violence and we want folks to stay safe out there yeah. in the office or in the clinic you know you can still be an activist even if you're not out on the street so educate your patients hear what they have to say talk with your patients about contraceptive options, other things to empower them and to protect them against the need for an abortion in an unclear environment. One thing that we mentioned a long time ago when we talked about emergency contraception, Faye, that I think people just constantly need to think about and be reminded about is to talk with your patients particularly about emergency contraception, ways to access emergency contraception without a prescription, um, and to even consider picking those up and stockpiling it, keeping it with them. Um, So that way, in case there's any threats to emergency contraception, as it's sometimes perceived as an abortifacient, that they have access to it still. And finally, we would charge you, particularly as you know, junior physicians, residents, fellows, to have a list of providers or places that are safe for patients, that can provide abortion services or make them readily accessible if patients desire them. Um, on our website, we'll link to one such service, plancpills.org, um, which is a website dedicated to how to acquire pills for medication abortion um, if needed.
0: All right, Nick. I, I think that brings us to the end of this episode. I don't know if there's anything really that we want to summarize other than the fact that we are angered and hear your anger as well about um, this leaked document from the Supreme Court um, and the fact that you know we make it part of our jobs and we dedicate ourselves to making sure that our patients um, continue to have the right to abortion and to all types of health care every single day.
1: Absolutely. And again, we appreciate everybody listening to the podcast. I know Faye and I, as we mentioned at the top, have had so much fun and so much privilege doing this over the last several years to be out there and hearing from you all as listeners, as colleagues, as friends. Um, And so we feel like today this is something that we really need to to stand up for. So thank you for listening.
0: All right, guys. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee.
1: So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating interview.
0: You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at coffee And if you want to donate to the show, go ahead and go into our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee.
1: We'll have show notes as well as important resources for this particular episode for abortion care on our website, KriagsOverCoffee.com. You can also find weekly the Rosh Review Question of the Week.
0: And if you want to suggest future episodes, have corrections for previous episodes, or just want to come and say hi, or let us know what you're doing to help protect abortion rights in your particular space, give us an email at KriagsOverCoffee at gmail.com.